We are in Parshat Vayechi this morning. We are in the um, closing of the story of Yosef, this novella um, about Yosef. Um, we have Yaakov <coughs> blessing his children at the end of chapter, uh, or in the yeah, at the end of chapter forty-nine. We're going to begin uh, right at the end of that blessing. And so we're going to start at, at Genesis 49, verse 28. But first I want to review a little bit about where we've been. So um, so last week, Joseph came out, right, Bert? Right? So um, if you were here last week, Yosef comes out to his brothers, and he, but he puts them through a series of tests before he does that, before he's willing to be vulnerable and let them know who he is exactly behind his Egyptian voice and language and customs and costume and makeup and hair. Um, He is completely assimilated. He's not only assimilated, he is the second highest authority in Egypt. He is completely Egyptian in all ways that, that, you know, would seem to matter. He has a great deal of wealth and a great deal of power, a great deal of influence and complete control over his brother's Fates. He tests them to see if they've changed since the days when he uh, knew them. And because we'll recall, <laughs> that wasn't a very pleasant experience for Joseph, right? What, what, how his brothers treated him. And so he's not going to make himself vulnerable, and he's not going to expose himself to them and come out to them until um, he sees that they have changed. So he <clears throat> sees that, and um, they have this lovely reunion. They bring their elderly father Jacob down from Canaan, where there's a famine. Right where Joseph can take care of them all, and they're going to settle in the land of Goshen, that the northern part of Egypt, where again the crops are not influenced by rain; they are influenced by floods. The Nile, the Nile flooding. Right, irrigation happens from the Nile overflowing its banks. So very often, like we said in the ancient world, when there's a famine in Canaan, Mesopotamia, um, Egypt, that northern part of Egypt had food because of the Nile. So. They are going to settle there, and everything seems to be going swimmingly. Yosef has not seen his father since he was a youth, right? Since he was sold into slavery, he's not seen his father. So we're not in that part of the triennial reading, but you can imagine the scene when uh, he thinks he'll never see his father again. His father assumes he's never going to see his son again, Um, and, uh, and there's this incredible reunion between them. So... Torah, as usual, is very terse, it's very compact, and it doesn't really care about all the intervening years. There's this lovely reunion, and now we get Jacob on his deathbed, right? So Torah's not interested in the day-to-day life and what people feel and what they experience and how they grow, right? That, that is simply not the interest of the biblical authors. So we just had the reunion between Yosef and Yaakov, and now Yaakov's on his deathbed, right? So many years later... He's going to bless his sons, as we've seen happen over and over and over again in Torah. When it's time to die, it is time to give a deathbed blessing to those who will carry on. The texts that we have surrounding this this process of blessing is a is a compilation of different tribal traditions. Um, it is not a unified whole. It's not what we're going to be looking at. But we're going to come right at the end of that. If you look at 49.27, the last to be blessed is Binyamin. Why? He's the baby. He's the baby of the family. And it's organized in an interesting way with uh, the children of the different matriarchs. Um, Do we know how old Benjamin is at this point? I don't know that we do. I mean, we could do the math. But he, but does someone have a page number? Two ninety one in the green. Um, so Jacob is one hundred and ten. So I don't know how old that makes Benjamin. We'd have to figure out how old Yaakov was when Benjamin was born and Rachel died, because she dies, of course, in childbirth. Okay, so we are coming to the end where Binyamin is being blessed as a ravenous wolf. 
exactly how I think about blessing our children today, right? Um, in the morning, he consumes the foe, and in the evening, he divides the spoil. So lovely, lovely tradition that we have. So if someone would like to begin reading at 28... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't it, right, you don't want to hear what he said when he was mad at him. Isn't that talking about the tribe and not the person, really? Maybe. So <laughs> always there are two parallel tracks, always. When we're talking about the sons of Jacob, we are always talking about the tribes. We are always talking about the tribes who retroject their ancestry onto mythic brothers, right? But yes, this was always a loose confederation of tribes. They come together in an alliance, and once that starts to become a nation state, they write the national history, and they make their progenitors brothers. So it's retrojected back to a fictional stay with me more, to a mythic, to a mythic time uh, in our it, I did more leaving now. <laughs> We've had many discussions about historicity, and does it have to be factual to be true? And more and I come on different sides of that discussion. Uh, so let's look at 28. So yes and yes, Bert. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and thus did their father speak to them as he blessed them, blessing each one with a blessing that befit him. And he gave them a charge, saying, When I am gathered to my people, bury me with my ancestors in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, in the land of Canaan, the field that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite as an inalienable gravesite. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah, and they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah, and there I buried Leah. The purchase of the field and the cave in it was from the Hittites. When Jacob was done, charging his son, he drew his feet into the bed. He then breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So we're getting the epilogue, right, of the Yaakov story here. So they were 12 in number, and Yaakov has now blessed each of them. And then he instructs them, right? Saying, I'm about to be gathered to my kin. This is the euphemism for I'm about to die. And I want to be buried where? With my family, with my ancestors, right? In the cave of Machpelah, where uh, we are told in this very literary um, tying up the loose ends way, that the cave which is in the field of Machpelah facing Mamre in the land of Canaan. The field that Avraham bought from Ephron for a burial site where Avraham and Sarah are buried, Yitzchak and Rivka, and where I buried Leah. Where's Rachel? Where's Rachel? When she buried by the side of the road? By Bethlehem, right? Where she died. They weren't going to carry the body all the way to the cave of Machpelah. Um, You're talking about a climate where you can't do that. No, but Jacob wants to be carried there. Bones. Secondary burial, right? So in the ancient world, you had ossuaries. There was always secondary burial. You had the primary burial, and then a year later, you would go collect the bones after the flesh had rotted off, and then you would take the bones, put them in an ossuary, and you'd bury the bone box, the ossuary, in a family plot. So often there were, if you think of a cave, there were slots in the cave for bodies, and then in the center was where you would bury the ossuary so that lots of people could be in different stages of decomposition essentially Um, and then you would put the bones in the ossuary for a secondary burial for me it's very powerful that I feel like we still have a remnant of that process in what ritual? the unveiling the setting of the stone we still go back a year later and do something more permanent, you know, after a year. It's, for me, very powerful that we've been doing this for 3,000 years. I'm not, I don't know that it's derivative. I mean, the, the unveiling is something that comes from Europe. It's a custom that comes from modern Europe. 
But I think as a people, we have this impulse, right, that we, we need to go back after that first year, because the firsts are always the hardest. The first birthday, the first you know, holiday, the first Rosh Hashanah, the first everything is the hardest. And, um, and something's different after those firsts. You know, once you've come through those firsts, there's something different about the rest of your life in mourning for that person. And um, so I, I think it's a very, for me, it's very moving that we, 3,000 years later, are still going back a year later. And I'm not familiar with the word ossuary. Is it like a coffin? Mm-hmm. It's like a box. box. It's a like smaller box <laughs> into which the bones, everything that doesn't decompose, would have gone in that box. We we found many. So, so he wants to be buried with his ancestors, and so he again something I think that we still as human beings right have an impulse, even though we know we're not going to be there exactly. We we want we want to be in the family plot. Right? We want to be together with the family. And Yaakov finishes his instructions. He draws his feet into the bed and was gathered to his people. So he dies. Somebody want to read at 50? Joseph threw himself upon his father. He wept over him and kissed him. Joseph then charged his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. When his 40 days were completed, for it took the embalmers that many days, Egypt bewailed him 70 days. The days of bewailing him passed, and Joseph spoke to Pharaoh's household, saying, If I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh and say, My father adjured me, saying, See, I am about to die in my grave that I have acquired for myself in the land of Canaan. There must, there must you bury me. Now, then, give me leave to go up and bury my father. Then I will come back. Pharaoh said, "Go up and bury your father, as he adjured you." Joseph. Okay, let's let's stop here. Question. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, why in fifty um, is it? Uh, the physicians to embalm his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel. Why did they change from Jacob to Israel in that So let's let's look at it. So Yosef is is overcome, right, with emotion. Vayipol Yosef al Aviv, and Yosef fell on the face of his father. This is a unique expression in Torah. We don't see it anywhere else. Sometimes you will see someone falling on the neck of someone else, but that's when you're both upright. So that when you fall on the neck of somebody, you know, you, you are embracing. Um, so we, we don't see this anywhere else in Torah, this gesture of falling on someone's face. But we can imagine that he's overcome um, with grief at his father's death. Um, for me, it's a poignant moment. I don't think, for me, Yosef is just grieving his father's death. I think he's grieving everything that was lost all of those years. All of those years that he didn't have his father, that he didn't know his father, that his father mourned for him, right? And um, it, so for me, like, this, this grief is profound for Yosef, who's made it. Yosef is completely successful. He's completely made it. And yet there's this huge part of him missing, experience of his life that's missing, that he can't get back. And he... Weeps. Yosef is somebody who feels very deeply. He remember he has to leave the room when his brothers are there because he's so overcome with emotion at seeing Benjamin that he has to leave and go weep in the other room and then wash his face. He's he's deeply he's someone who feels deeply. And so Yosef orders them to embalm his father. Yosef himself will be embalmed. Right? So Again, this is, you know, when you're dealing with that kind of climate, one of the ways you preserve the body is you embalm the body. Um, Clearly, this is not a religious ritual for Yaakov or for Yosef. This is is very different from the Egyptian understanding of embalming, which would have been uh, part of their rituals around entering into, you know, what comes next and the cult of Osiris. But isn't that... Partially Joseph's assimilation, 
Absolutely. Absolutely, I think so. The dignified way to deal with the body in Egyptian tradition would be to embalm. You don't let it rot, God forbid. Right? That's just, ew. Like, you know, you embalm. Um, and, and preserve the body. So, so whenever we talk these days about we don't embalm, we don't embalm, we don't embalm, we don't embalm. So it's, um, yes, that's true. We don't. And it's not always been you know, the same ooh, reaction Jewishly to embalming that, that we have today, right? It's, it, it was fine for, was for Yaakov first, and Yosef. Was Jacob Yosef. the first of the fathers to be embalmed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we tend to think these things go all the way back to biblical texts. They often do not, right? They're often rabbinic in their origin. Things like, ooh, we don't embalm. So he has the physicians because he's got the, the ability to hire only the best, right, for his father. Um, and and they, the, the Egyptians themselves mourn publicly for Yaakov for 70 days. So we're not sure if the 40 days that is referenced and the 70 days are concurrent or if they're, what do you call it? When, consecutive. 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 Thank you. It looks consecutive. The 40 days here. is interesting. It's an interesting number. Right? It's an interesting number. It's not what we're used to seeing, right? Um, but we do have records from the ancient world, from Herodotus, that says that the body was placed in niter, N-I-T-E-R, for 70 days. So it's possible that this is actually part of the process of embalming, and so while that's happening, they're still mourning because it, it it's not like done. It, you know, the when I read it, it looks like it says it took them 40 days to embalm it and then they right. bewail him an additional mm-hmm. 70. That's kind of what it reads like. So, mm-hmm. so it's possible. It, yep. So we're, we're not exactly sure. Um, but there's also a process of 30 days of dressing the corpse with um, spices and oils. Right. So there, there are the, all these different ways of going about embalming and some of them are long um, in terms of their process Um, and of course um, our tradition understands it as there was a period of time that it took for embalming and then 30 days would have been right the normative and is and remains normative for us about that initial period of mourning Um, and and we have that for Aharon right in the in the Torah, we have that Aharon is mourned for 30 days. So it seems that the, bibli- the origin of 30 days is biblical and is still normative for us. So the question becomes, what, so what is this about he's called Yaakov, he's called Israel? So um, Yaakov experiences the name change when he wrestles with whatever it is that he understands it to be that he's wrestling with. Um, and and comes away from that encounter limping. Um, his name is changed from Yaakov to Israel, the one who wrestles, one who struggles with El, with God. Because somehow that's how our tradition understands that encounter. The rabbis talk often about when is he called Yaakov and when is he called Israel. Is he called Yaakov when he is embodying the, um, the usurper, the trickster, the clever Yaakov who you know, like manipulates everybody and manipulates everything. And then he's called Yisrael when he's living into more of his patriarchal role as the ancestor. It doesn't match up so easily. But Rabbi Shefa Gold, which we're going to talk about later, those of you who are with me later, um, Rabbi Shefa Gold has a lovely interpretation, which is sometimes we're Yisrael and sometimes we're Yaakov. That, that there are there are parts of us we don't leave behind. There are ways that we continually you know, act tr- true to who we are, who our unique and quirky nature is. Not always the best of us, but it's who we are. And there are other times we're able to kind of transcend that and live into who, who we want to be and what our greater values are and what, our, um, what we would want to leave behind as a legacy. And that both are always there. And that we move back and forth Um, Between those, Torah never gives up the name Yaakov. He's referred to as both. That 
somehow in that name change, in that becoming something more than he was, he still carries within him Yaakov. So, I mean, that's the best I can do in terms of why he's called Yaakov and why he's called Yisrael, because Torah doesn't leave the Yaakov part behind in referring to him as Israel. But we are, interestingly enough, B'nai Yisrael. We could have been a lot of things. We could have been B'nai Avraham. We could have been B'nai Yitzchak, right? B'nai Yaakov. And we're not. We're B'nai Yisrael. I have a question about the relationship between Israel and Egypt. Mm-hmm. What is that? What do contemporary rabbis, how do they view that connection? Because like, I don't know if there's scientific proof that we built the pyramids or things like that. <laughs> Mara, do you want to like take that one? There's some <laughs> harmony going on here, which is interesting. So always when we look at Torah texts regarding like ancestors dealing with other peoples or other tribes or other countries, it's always reflective of a time in Israel's history and relationships between the nation of Israel and her neighbors. So there, so you're right. There's clearly times where ancient Israel had a positive relationship with Egypt. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely true. We know this from the record that there was, when there was famine in Canaan, people often went down to become migrant workers in Egypt. However, having said that, Egypt is always down there. It's always down. It's always a decline in terms of spiritual purity. I mean, not that they would have used that word in ancient Israel, but like cultic purity. You know, it, um, it was understood to be uh, wealthy and degraded in that way, right? They were. Um, it's what I think of when I think of Rome. Often, you know, like that they were incredibly wealthy and therefore seen by certain people like the ancient Israelites as being decadent and um, self-indulgent and um, the wealth of Egypt, the power of Egypt was exactly how we understand the United States and the world today. Mm-hmm. Right? They were the dominant power in, in that part of the world. Um, Mesopotamia was the other power. So it was Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Israel in the middle. Whenever and this was a here's the ocean because for me here's the ocean here's Mesopotamia here's Egypt here's Israel it's also a, a spice route a trading route so it's both on the coast so you got shipping issues and it's a north south trade route between Mesopotamia and Egypt there was always competition between Egypt and Mesopotamia which meant Israel was constantly being overrun constantly smished in the you know, goings on between Mesopotamia and Egypt constantly. So I think there was always also some, and always threatened from the sea because of the coast. So, so ancient Israel was always caught between the superpowers of the day. And so I, I can't help but believe there's also some serious resentment, right, about the control Egypt had over the region um, and its resources and what happened. Um, life was very unstable. Uh, in that part of the world remains unstable in that part of the world it's not and it's not a wonder to me that it's unstable people go how come they can't do it? They, it's never been stable it's always been earthquakes famine all the things that can happen war all of it kept the populations moving around and competing for resources all the time so there's always this love hate with egypt Always, And so you hear at the end of our story that Yosef makes it very clear, take my bones out of here when you go. Right, so take them. I, I don't want to be like it. The text makes it very clear. I don't want to stay here, you know, forever. So it's just very. But the relationship at this point seems to be quite good mm-hmm. because Pharaoh is being very nice. He lets him live there. Joseph says, That's Can right. I have like a sabbatical and go to bury my father and get some time off? And That's right. Pharaoh says, sure. That's right. And what does it lead to? What is all that being lovely to us and letting us stay and incorporating us? What does it lead to? Well, we got very numerous and then there was a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And that led to? Slavery. So be very careful. Be very careful. Egypt will let you in. 
you can check out any time you like, <laughs> but you can never leave. They will let you in, and they'll be very nice to you. Be very careful. Be very suspicious. Don't let your guard down, right? And Because someone will arise who did not know Joseph. Always. And you know that place down there. <laughs> right? Be very very careful. So, it, so yes, there there was times there was good relationships. Always suspicion, and our people are hanging out down there, but are going to be enslaved for four hundred years. Right? This is the way the story of the Exodus is set up. This is how we get there. Um, is this? But but definitely, definitely reflects you know periods where there was good relationships. All right. Where are we? I have lost our place. Fifty. No. I mean, yes. 50, uh, seven. I'm sorry. 50 seven. verse 7, seven. right? Seven. So Pharaoh says, okay, go, y'all. And so verse 7, what happens? Joseph goes. <laughs> Somebody want to read? Joseph then went up to bury his father. With him went all Pharaoh's officials, the eldest of the palace, and all the other elders of Egypt, and all Joseph's household, and his brother and his father's household. They left in Goshen only their little ones, their flocks, and their cattle. And with him went the chariots and the charioteers, so the camp was very numerous. When they reached Goran Ha'atad, on the other side of the Jordan, they held there a great and solemn lamentation. He observed a mourning ceremony of seven days for his father. When the land's inhabitants, the Canaanites, saw the mourning ceremony at Goran Ha'atad, they said, this is a solemn mourning for Egypt. And they called the place Abel Mitzrayim. It is on the other side of Jordan. Thus his, his sons did for Jacob exactly as he had commanded them. His sons conveyed him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, the field that Abraham had bought as an inalienable gravesite from Ephron the Hittite, facing Mamre. All right, so we, some scholars want to suggest that there is already an eroding of the situation in Egypt because Joseph is so quick to assure Pharaoh that he's coming back. Right, that that there's already some tension, some instability in the situation, right here. But either way, Joseph makes it clear that he's going to go, but he's going to come back. They leave their little ones; they have to come back. Right? We're going to see an echo of this later when Moshe says to Pharaoh, "Let my people go to worship in the desert for three days," and Pharaoh says, "Then leave your little ones here." Right? If you're going to go for three days, you don't need your kids. And all these officials, Egyptian officials, went with them. Exactly. All these dignitaries, all these officials. Since, since earliest times for us, accompanying the body to its place of rest has been a central part of what it means to honor the memory of the deceased. Since this time and forward. There's a wonderful text in the Talmud that says... Um, you know, if you're planting a tree and the Messiah comes, finish planting the tree and then go greet the Messiah. But there's another one that says, should the Mashiach come and there's a funeral procession, you know, you leave the Mashiach and go join the funeral procession, right? You know, that, that there's, and that anytime there's a funeral procession for anybody that comes by you, you stop what you're doing and join the procession. So meaning whether you knew the person or not. Um, that the Hebrew word actually for funeral is levaya. Accompaniment. So it's not a service. It's not prayers. The Hebrew term for funeral is levayat, that we are accompanying the dead to their place of rest. Um, and so this remains one of our um, primary mourning rituals is to accompany the body. Um, and uh, in places like Duluth, it was very serious for people. You know, to go in 13 below to accompany the body to the cemetery was significant. It was a significant act of self-sacrifice, and they took it very seriously. They understood that you brave 13 below if you can, right? And often there were conversations in the foyer as we left to go to the cemetery about whether or not somebody was going to allow their mother, father, spouse, or whoever to go. It's too cold. You wait here. We'll be back. You know, no, I have to go. You know, so it was, I mean, I think as a people, we still really understand the, the importance for us of what it means to, to accompany the body to the, to the burial. Is this the first time the seven days is mentioned? For like Shiva? 
Was that previously? In there? I think not. But I can't be. I don't know. I have to. I have to see. But I, I don't think so. Um, like you know, we know from even before, um, before Israelite custom in Canaanite texts, we have seven days. Mm-hmm. Um, but it may it may be the first time we see it in Torah. Let me look at my note. Saul. So we see it in Samuel, Job, and Ben Sirach. So I don't mm-hmm. see another reference to Shiva. So this may be this may be the. Did I see a hand somewhere? No? Okay. Um, so, 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong that we did? So they sent this mo- message to Joseph. Before his death, your father left this instruction. So shall you say to Joseph, Forgive, I urge you, the offense and the guilt of your brothers who treated you so harshly. Therefore, please forgive the offense of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph was in tears as he spoke to them. So, right? Right? You just got to shake your head, right? So, Yaakov dies, and what's the brother's response? Right? They're really sorry. They're really what? They're really sorry they did that to him. So, how it's been years. They've had this wonderful reunion. They've been living together for years. Joseph's given them everything. Yaakov dies, and what happens? Families do what families do. There's deep fissures in this family that just are not going to be overcome. Right? They're still there. There's, there's tension, there's fissures that they cannot heal just by hanging out together in Goshen. And the minute Yaakov's gone, you know, the anchoring force is gone, they immediately become suspicious that possibly Yosef's now going to take his revenge. And so what do they do? They send a message to Yosef saying, before his death... Not our father. Why isn't it our father? They don't even trust playing on their brotherliness with him. Right? They They forfeited that. When they threw him in that pit and started discussing how to kill him, right? They forfeited. You know, daddy, our daddy, our shared daddy told us, right? Your father. So this is about... They're saying, you, you need to honor what your father said to us. And that is that you, Joseph, should forgive the guilt of your brothers who treated you so harshly. Did Yaakov say this? We don't know. <laughs> he would have said it directly to Joseph. Possibly he would have said it directly to Joseph, Robert. We'll never know. We'll, we will never know. Like so many things in our family's mythic story, our mythic history, we are not told. Torah does not tell us. All we know is that the brothers are freaking out, right? And they need to somehow communicate to Yosef that, that daddy would not have liked it if you killed us all. And of course these brothers you know, previously were known not to tell the truth. Right? So once upon a time, that's true. Yosef tested them pretty harshly to see if they'd changed, and he felt they had changed. And then we see, right, right there, some things might have changed, and some things maybe not so much, which is, which is the way in families, right? I don't know about you, but I've been in this business of listening and certainly in my own life long enough to know there are, there are things that happen that you might move past it, but it never is the same afterwards in a family. Never. Right? Unless someone has Alzheimer's and they don't remember. There, well, there you go. But the person who does remember, it's not the same. right? There's ways we can forgive and there's ways we can move past and there's ways we can build new relationships. And there are some things that once they happen, they're not gone. It's also interesting, Joseph doesn't seem to react to the fact that his father knew what happened. 
Oh, right. Right. That would have been a whole other thing. Then why didn't his father, why didn't Jacob say anything if he knew what was going on? Why didn't he try to find him? Yeah. Right. Well, he, did, he wouldn't know when Jacob found out. That's right. We don't know, and we don't know anything about if yeah, and when or how Yaakov found out. If he did at all. Uh, so I said, yeah, if. Right, right. We, we don't know. All we're getting is the brothers, right? But it's interesting, he doesn't say, so we had a chat with Dad <laughs> like, and explained that there was an accident, <laughs> right? And we weren't careful, and you fell in a pit. Like, what, what did they tell him? I once heard uh, forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. Mm-hmm. But can you really forgive when you still remember? <laughs> I, I think it's hard. I, I, I think it's very hard. Those brothers might also, also be remembering that Joseph might still be the So what, what, what about him remaining the favorite would make them nervous when Yaakov dies? His blessing. His, his deathbed blessing. Or his hmm? his deathbed blessing. Yosef doesn't get a deathbed blessing. <laughs> Who gets the blessing? For Yosef. Ephraim and Menashe. It's his grandchildren that he blesses. Yeah. Okay. But right? he's still he's, he's still the big cheese in it's Egypt, definitely. and he can still do horrible things to them. Yeah. Right, but so but so Dana's saying, well, maybe some of this is about the tension here is about um, that he's still the favorite. So mm-hmm. what what's the danger of him still being the favorite when Jacob dies? What's what Jacob what Jacob says at, like in forty nine when he talks about. Uh, when he, when he talks about Joseph and uh, that he is um, let all the let my let the blessings of your father surpass my parents' blessing, the bounty of the time of sales, let them be on Joseph's head on the brow of the prince among his brothers. That's that's on Jacob's deathbed. Right, so he, he blesses all of them, but he gives the special yes. bracha to Menashe and Ephraim. Like Joseph's included with his right, so he's he's part of it, but he, he gives the special bracha to Ephraim and Menashe. When he adopts them, yes, Jacob does. Yes, but I, what I'm looking at is I'm looking at forty nine twenty five. Yeah, six that. And it looks as if that's what he's talking about the blessings for Jake for Joseph, or uh-huh. the blessings for the other brothers, or maybe not the blessings, but the description. Joseph is a wild ass. But then he goes on a, another lovely, lovely tradition among our people to bless our children. <laughs> Wild asses. But doesn't that continue at 26? <laughs> mm-hmm. By the God of your father who helps you should die, who blesses you. Are those the blessings at, at 25 and 26 that are on Menachem and Ephraim? And on no, the, the, he, this is where Joseph's part of the blessing of all the brothers. Yes. He's part of all of that. But they get, we'll see when they get, they get their own bracha from Yaakov. Separate from all the twelve brothers, right? So, so he. In any case, I have a Devar Tzedek from um, from American Jewish World Service, and Daniel Bloom in this article has a very powerful um, makes a very powerful connection between this idea of things that happen in families not going away, and he talks about child soldiers. And what they are forced to do in many places in the world. And that then when the war is over and they're not being fed, you know, or kept by their, you know, by the army anymore, they have to go back home. And oftentimes these children are told, kill your parents or we'll kill you. In Africa, a lot of these children are, are ordered to kill their parents. Why? 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 Do you think? Why order a child to kill their parents? To break any ties. You don't have split allegiances. You don't have strong allegiances. You break any family and clan ties. And you ruin that child psychologically. And you own them. If you force a child to do something like that, you now own that child's psyche. You are in complete and utter control. You break that child as an individual. 
And then these kids have to go home to their clan. So um, it's a very powerful piece about um, what that means, what reconciliation looks like um, when it can't really ever go away, right? So how, how do we, when there are devastations and, and families that are either from within or imposed from without, how, how do we both recognize the horror of what's happened and yet move on? I think for us as a people, I see it a lot of times in people dealing with the Shoah, in people dealing with the Holocaust. There's, there's you know, in, in families, there's so many issues that, that are subterranean in families with survivors. Um, the guilt of surviving. Sometimes I think the shame of surviving. Because um, it was understood by many who survived um, that the best of us did not make it. Right? I mean, that there's the gentlest most generous um, among us perished first. They were the ones who gave their bread or their hat to somebody else and they were shot. Um, so, so there is this sense of what I had to do to survive um, and how that runs through so much, not, not just in families, but I think in so much of our Jewish, our Judaism that we've inherited in some ways is a PTSD Judaism. Um, and, and I think part of it is, is informs how we get a little crazy when we just start trying to talk about Israel, right? That we, we don't exactly approach the topic of Israel as rationally as we do any other discussion in the Jewish community, even here, right? The way people get heated and get crazy about their opinions about Israel, their positions about it, I really have to believe is some kind of an existential you know, reaction um, that is completely not rational. Not that our arguments can't be rational, but the heat, you know, with which we come at each other about them is, is different and, um, and I think is part of this, this trauma that lives in what here is, is a family, but, you know, but for us as a big family, um, some serious trauma that continues to inform um, how we deal with each other. So um, he, Daniel Bloom says, in, in some post-conflict and post-genocide communities, there's a focus on truth and justice, an effort to document wrongdoing and hold the perpetrators accountable. Although noble in attention, the process of uncovering the truth, especially when it comes to certain atrocities committed by brothers against brothers, may in fact exacerbate lingering ethnic, political, or personal hostilities. In some cases, therefore, the search for truth takes a back seat in the pursuit of reconciliation, leaving stories untold and crimes unprosecuted in the hope of allowing communities to move forward. I wonder what it would mean for us to like take reconciliation and letting each other go like a little more seriously, right? Like that, you know, everybody's got to be we got to be so right, and we got to uncover it all, and we got to, you know. And it's like I wonder if there isn't something to learn from saying, okay, can we just let it be, right? That we and not hammer it to death and like let some things lie that we just need to let go of and move past already as a people. You know, I'm, I'm struck by these, you know, Joseph's brothers and not only did they resent him when he was the most beloved when he was young and they, to the point where they wanted to kill him, he goes to Egypt and he wins again. He won his father's love. He wins. These guys are, you know, they can't catch a break. <laughs> the, the resentment must have been incredible. If he goes back to his dreams, when he is uh, lorded over his brothers, they will serve him in a way. Mm-hmm. So the the dreams come true, right? <clears throat> what do you make of the next? Over here, it's a paragraph, eighteen to twenty-one. Joseph. You're talking about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And he, he does kind of take the high road yep. here. And, but the reason he gives... Mm-hmm. About being God's Is that God was plan. behind all of this. Mm-hmm. That it's okay. Mm-hmm. God intended it to happen. So this... What? <laughs> that's... So, you know, this is our, this is our tradition's yeah. proof that Yosef has changed. You know, that, that Yosef says, it's, it's not about you and me. 
right? It, it isn't about what happened to me. It, what happened to me was a means for all of us as a people to survive. For many, many people, including Egyptians, to survive. And so it isn't about my suffering, right? Everything that happened to me. It's about there was a grander scheme. This was meant to be so that I could fulfill this role of helping so many people, right? So is this, does he really believe this? Can we believe something like that? Can we believe something like that? That... That's really my question. As a progressive Jew, what do we make of that? So suffering, but it really was for the best because God had a plan. It's a very Jewish answer. Does that make answer. any sense? It's a very Jewish answer. It's, it's a very Jewish response to suffering. When one door closes, The reason for the Holocaust was the state of Israel. I personally hate that connection. Yeah. But, um, but that's, you'll hear that a lot, right? That, that we had to go through what we went through in order to, as a, as a progressive Jew, mm. obviously... Tough one. It doesn't work. I mean, as a, as a progressive Jew, for me, there's no way this theology works at all. That, that suffering is part of the plan in order to, because the minute I go there, I have to deal with the seven-year-old <clears throat> raped and left for dead in the woods. I, and I can't do that. I, 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 there's no, you know, there, if it's true in this case, then... How come it's not true here that there are child soldiers ordered to kill their parents or be killed? That's that's got to happen in order to. Or Newtown. Or Newtown. That has to happen in order. As soon as you have a God who says in order, forget it. We're done. I'm not talking to that God. I'm done. So, so obviously, as a progressive Jew, this is not my theology. Does that mean there aren't times that it's comforting to think, huh, had I not suffered <laughs> what I suffered... I wouldn't be able to have empathy for people who are in that same situation or in worse situations. That certainly where we find meaning in our own personal histories of suffering is critical to our spiritual health and growth and our contribution um, to, to locate it in God made it happen so that for me, that doesn't work. Dana? Oh, sorry, Robert. I there's also a lesson for someone who profited or gained or was successful then what? And they can look at Joseph and see how he <clears throat> took his knowledge, his wealth, his power and he helped, you know, his family survive and, you know, they're Jews that have to do that too. They have, have to look beyond themselves and their success and help others. Right. And, and let us be clear. Yosef helps other people and when they can't buy food anymore what does he tell them? Then sell Pharaoh your land. And they do. And then they don't have any land to sell. So what does he say? Sell Pharaoh your livestock for food. And they do. And then they don't have any more livestock, Torah tells us. So Yosef says to them, then sell Pharaoh your person. And they did. That is how slavery began in Egypt. So, yes, there are lots of wealthy Jews. And we hope that they give back and we hope that they help. We hope that they don't do so in such a way that they perpetuate the very institutions that are enslaving and impoverishing other people. It is a serious issue for me right now, you know, especially after these elections. It's like Jews, you know, who have really, you know, a lot of money and a lot of conservative positions that are, in, just in my opinion, um, helping to keep other people at the margins. It's a real so yes, definitely. Yes and yes. Success, terrific, give back, absolutely, and in a way that doesn't result. Joseph sets up what's about to happen for the next 400 years. He creates that condition of slavery. Robert, you wanted to say something? Oh, well, I was going back to the point you made earlier about your discomfort with uh, God's making all this happen. I couldn't agree with you more. And I see that argument as a very slippery slope mm-hmm. to the, the, the next, not only did God make all this happen, but if, including bad things happening to good people, but by the way, those people did something that caused it to happen mm-hmm. to them. And I for sure can't go there either. Right. Which is a biblical worldview, right? That's biblical theology, and thank God we are an evolving religious civilization, right, that that can appreciate 
the theology of that time and why that made sense and that that was their worldview. And thank God we have evolved and at, at least as progressive Jews have moved past I know that. this is off the subject, but who are the patriarchs that are supposed to be buried in the tomb near Hebron? Because when yeah. I was there, it was the windiest day of my life, and I never went to the tomb. You, know? you, you didn't go to the tomb in, in, in Hebron? Yeah. So, so who, who is there? So, so that's the cave of Machpelah that they're talking about. The tradition is Avraham, right? Right. That, that, that this is, so if we look back at the text, right? So that, that's the one that's being talked about here. As Rachel was buried where she died, right? Correct. So not there. Right. So, so Avraham, Sarah, Yitzchak, Rivka, and Leah. That's all? <laughs> That's a lot. That's all? <laughs> it was a small Where's Lincoln? <laughs> <laughs> um, so so we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here. Um, and he so so Yosef tells them it's all God's plan, it's all okay, don't worry about it. And um, they remain together in Egypt until Yosef is hundred and ten. Yosef lived to see children of the third generation of Ephraim, the children of Machir, son of Menashe, uh, were likewise born upon Yosef's knees, right? He adopts them as his own. At length, Yosef says to his brothers, I am about to die. God will surely take notice of you and bring you up from this land to the land that he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Yosef made the sons of Yisrael swear. Here we go, B'nai Yisrael, back to Anne's point about whether they are Yaakov's or Israel's descendants, when God has taken notice of you, you shall carry up my bones from here. Right? Foreshadowing. Da, 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 da. God will take notice of you and break. Why can't they just leave right now? Clearly, this is a gloss, right? Clearly, this is a later, right? Um, but they could get up and leave right now. The foreshadow. It, it, right. So it's God will take notice of you, meaning when you are enslaved right and you will carry up my bones from here he dies at 110 he was embalmed and placed in a sarcophagus in Egypt we say together chazak chazak venit chazek may we be strong may we be strengthened may we be healthy uh, enough to begin together our study of shmot chazak chazak venit chazek we in our tradition never end a book of torah without what these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Yaakov, each coming with his household, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Judah, Yisachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of persons that were in Jacob's issue came to 70, Yosef being already in Egypt. The opening lines of the book of Exodus, we are never between books of Torah. We are never in between in our studies. We always rush to begin um, the next book.